Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashan. Nashan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Well, good morning, everyone. 
Lovely to see you all. It's an exciting day for us with Christmas Festival just a little later on. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, I'm Ben, I'm part of the staff team here, and it's my pleasure to open up the final chapter in Ruth to end our Advent series. Can you believe that we're at the end of the series? Christmas is only four days away. Crazy, crazy. I want to start off by asking you a question. I just want you to consider this for a moment. Have you ever felt like God is working against you? Have you ever had that sense before? Have you ever felt like God is working against you? It's something I hear pretty regularly. I've heard it this year. I've had people say those very words to me. I've heard people say, you know, why am I situation? Why am I in such a situation like this? Why won't God just change it or answer this prayer? I mean, it doesn't even seem that self-interested. Why, why won't he do this? Is, is God against me? And just this week, actually, a friend of mine in this church, he shared his story and he talked about some really difficult things that he had been through the past couple of years. And he got pretty emotional at one stage. And he said, this, this really affected me. This was really, really difficult. Last year, I was a broken man. All of us at some stage in life will feel broken, hopeless, and sometimes even bitter, bitter against God. And that's exactly where Naomi was in the beginning of our story in Ruth. She'd lost her husband and her boys, and she came back to Bethlehem, a broken woman. She told the women of the town in, in chapter 1, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She told them, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Can you hear the pain in those words? And I'm sure some of us have experienced emotions like that before. And so I think it's important for us to consider a slightly different question. And this is the question that Ruth chapter 4 will answer. In bitter times, is God against us? Or put it more clearly, do bitter times mean God is against us? Or can we believe that even in times like these, God is working for our good? Do bitter times mean God is against us? Or can we believe that even in them, he is working for our good? The final chapter of Ruth directly addresses these questions. Ruth chapter 4 will show us where bitter situations can lead through God's guidance. And it gives us a privileged insight, an insight that we may never get into our own lives of the mysterious workings of God. So let's open it up together and find out what will become of these two widows, Ruth and Naomi. Last week, Boaz promised to go out and find the relative that was supposed to redeem Naomi's estate. And the widows are waiting nervously to see what will happen. Will Boaz follow through on his promise? Will Boaz and, and Ruth get together? Will they or won't they? Will Naomi's estate be redeemed or will she go on being called Mara, bitter, for the rest of her life? Let's take a look. Let's open it up. There's three sections in the chapter. 
And the first section looks at Boaz at the gate. Boaz at the gate. So remember last chapter, the last time we saw Boaz, he gave a generous gift to Ruth in the early hours of the morning. It was in chapter 3, verse 15. And then from there, Boaz set out for the town gate. And, and dawn had hardly cracked yet. It was, it was dark. And I just imagined this kind of mist over the town of Bethlehem. And I also imagined with his cloak kind of walking in, but that's just me, walking into the town, going to the town gate and taking his seat there. And, and one of the things that we need to know about the town gate, this wasn't just like a little garden gate that he walked through. This was the fortified entrance of the town. This is the place where you went to get stuff done. This is like a plaza, plenty of room for people to meet. There was seating that had to be there because this is the place where you got stuff done. You had financial transactions taking place here, legal transactions. So Boaz, a man of integrity, holds fast to his word, goes straight to the gate, sits down and waits, waits to see if he will find the other kinsman redeemer. Apparently there was no GPS tracking back then or mobile phones or anything like that. And it just so happens that the kinsman redeemer walks past. And so he asks this other kinsman redeemer, he says, hey, will, will you sit down with me for a moment? And he does. Boaz is a man of standing. Apparently when he asks you to do something, you did it. And then he went up to some of the elders of the town. He said, hey, I need you to listen in on this. Could you come and sit down? And they did. And once he had everyone's attention, he brings up the situation with the other kinsman redeemer. He says in verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Now, it's almost annoying how by the book Boaz is. I mean, he's putting everything at risk. Him and Naomi, him and Ruth might not get together. And like we've said earlier in the series, this was the dark time of the judges. No one was playing by the book. No one was doing the right thing. But you get to see Boaz's character here that he played exactly by the book. He followed the law and he gave the man with the first right to redeem the opportunity to do it first. But you could imagine if Ruth somehow was able to listen in on this, she'd be thinking, please say no, please say no. And then the next verse we read, he says, I will redeem it, he said. Heart drops. But Boaz isn't done yet. He replies, and just reminds the man of the full duty of this. He says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it for yourself. I cannot do it. Now, this makes an extremely important point in the story. The redemption of Ruth and Naomi was very costly. It was very costly. You see, the other guy, he was willing to redeem Ruth and Naomi when it was sensible. You know, it, when it was the honorable thing, but as long as it was sensible, as long as it didn't cost him too much. You see, at the time, he probably thought, okay, I'll be redeeming 
Naomi, so that means she'll come under my care. I'll have another mouth to feed, but I'll also get the land. I can farm that. I can recoup the cost through that. And once Naomi passes, the land becomes part of my family line. He actually gets an asset out of doing this good deed. So it seems like a, a pretty good deal. But once Boaz says, hey, let's take it a bit further than that. Let's really keep the spirit of the law. And, and you need to redeem also Ruth, the, the widow of Marlon. You need to redeem her as well. Then all of a sudden he realizes that taking this on would add another triple whammy of debt. First of all, that means he'd have another mouth to feed, Ruth. Second, he was meant to marry her, and if she had children, the firstborn son would not be his, it would belong to the line of Elimelech. And this son would secure that land, and he wouldn't get any access to that land. It would stay with the line of Elimelech. So he'd lose the land. Thirdly, if he didn't have any more sons of his own, he wouldn't have any heirs for his land, and all of it would go to the line of Elimelech. So let me just summarize that. Another mouth to feed, probably lose the opportunity to gain land out of this transaction, and possibly lose all of your inheritance to another family. So it was risky. It was risky business. He was willing to do the honorable thing only when it was sensible. But this was just too costly. Too costly. The redemption of Naomi and Ruth was very costly. Whoever did it was taking on big risks. It couldn't just be done out of self-interest. And this was too much for the nearer relative. The cost was too great. But not for Boaz. Boaz was willing to take on the risk. Boaz was willing to absorb the cost. And this really tells us something about the man's character, doesn't it? He stayed true to his word to Ruth. He didn't stuff around. He went straight to the gate and found the other relative like he said he would. He, he didn't shortcut the law. He followed it to a T. And knowing full well what it would cost him, he redeemed Naomi and Ruth anyway. This is a man of impeccable character, generosity, integrity, and kindness. Now, kids, you're going to like what happens next. Because back in those days, if you were really serious about something, you would tell the person, okay, I promise to do this. And you would take off your smelly shoe and you'd give it to the other person as proof. So the next time you, your mum and dad say, clean the room, and you promise to do it, you could always take the shoe off, give it to them and say, I'm that serious about cleaning my room, here you go. I'm not sure if they'd like that, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> anyway, when the other man gave up his right to redeem, he took his sandal off and he gave it to Boaz. And then Boaz spoke to everyone and he told them, hey, you are witnesses, keep me accountable. I'm not here to power grab some land, I really do want to care for these widows. I really do want to enable this line to continue and restore to Naomi the inheritance. And by this time, quite a crowd had developed and they were amazed by Boaz's character and generosity and they spoke some beautiful blessings over this new family. It says in verse 11, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Quick pause there. That's amazing. The woman coming into his home is a Moabite foreigner. Someone Israel would have usually hated. And they're saying, may she become like one of the great matriarchs of Israel. One of the great mothers of Israel. Okay. Press play. Who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. 
through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Perez was probably the most prominent line that came from Judah. And you know what's really cool? Even after all that, all of the, uh, so what's really cool, all of the blessings that the, fam, that the, uh, the town spoke of this family were actually fulfilled. We see this in the next section, which looks at Naomi and her grandson. Naomi and her grandson. So verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Will they or won't they? They did. They got married. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. A miracle for a woman who couldn't have a baby for 10 years when she was previously married. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, and just notice that all the rest of this section is devoted to Naomi. Praise be to the Lord, they said, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who was better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Isn't that such a beautiful outcome? Naomi had returned to Israel with her hands empty in chapter 1. She returned a childless widow. But now look at her. Look at the complete reversal of her fortunes. She has been cared for by Boaz. She now has a beautiful little grandchild that she can enjoy. And this child, this male heir, would secure the land of Elimelech, would mean that it would not leave the family. In the end, Naomi's empty hands were filled again. But notice that there was one blessing she had all along through the story. She said in chapter 1 that the Lord had brought her back empty, but she was wrong. Her Moabite daughter-in-law was standing right next to her. She didn't realize at the time just how much God would bless her through Ruth. Ruth was kind of like the hidden redeemer in her story. God used her kindness and faithfulness to Naomi to restore the older widow's fortunes. And in fact, the women of Bethlehem point out, your daughter-in-law who loves you, only time love is used in the story is of Ruth, is better to you than seven sons. See, Naomi could not see God's hidden hand of blessing in her life when things were bitter. She could not see that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, was God's blessing to her. And this teaches us a couple of lessons. The first lesson is to count your blessings. To count your blessings. Aren't we so much like Naomi at times? Totally unaware of God's loving presence. Totally unaware of the blessings that he has put in our lives. But the book of Ruth drives home the reality that God is at work in ordinary circumstances for good. Remember, it's no coincidence that Ruth just happened to stumble across Boaz's field. And it's no coincidence that Boaz just happened to immediately find the other redeemer. God was working and weaving and orchestrating circumstances to bring totally unforeseen blessing to the characters in this story. And what I want us to think about right now is whether we count our blessings. Do you recognize the blessings 
God gives you each day. Sunshine, laughter, loved ones, coffee, rain, breath. He gives us so much. If we open up our eyes, we see his kind hand at work everywhere. And so I just want to challenge you this week, if you're willing, maybe you want to try it for one week at the end of each day, just name three things to God that you are grateful for. Just name, write down three things or say it out loud and then thank God for those three things. I'll be doing that with you. Not only will you cultivate gratitude for what God has given you in the present, but you'll be stimulating your awareness of God's activity in your life, His presentness in your everyday, ordinary life. And I believe this is the other lesson we are taught here, to be aware of the everyday activity of God. Because I don't know about you, but even as a pastor, even as a pastor, I can go through a day without really expecting God to be directly involved in any way. And sometimes we think all of God's work has happened in the past, all of it's going to take place in the future. But what about right now? God is working today. John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is at work today. We don't control him, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we were more open to him? When I lived in London a few years ago, there were a few people in my church who were really good at this, and one of my friend's names was Lars, great Norwegian name. And uh, he was a wonderful guy, and he was always looking for God's hand at work, and he'd always just come back with these crazy stories of how God did something, how he met someone in the markets, and they're coming to church this Sunday, or how he met another person at some random place, and they happened to have a room which had the right rent that he needed, and there were Christians, and they could use the house for ministry, and all these different sorts of things. And I think it was because he was just open to the hand of God. He wasn't just thinking things were coincidences. He was always looking for God at work and looking to get involved and to cooperate with whatever God was doing. And sometimes he got it wrong. Sometimes he thought, oh, maybe God's doing something here and ended up being nothing. That was okay. But we just kept following Jesus and it was just beautiful to see the stories he'd come back with time and time again because of his openness to God. And for his, because of his belief that God was at work in everyday, ordinary stuff. God cares even about ordering little circumstances, like the field Ruth ended up in. And he was orchestrating such good in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, that blessings would continue to flow long after they died. And this is what we see in the final section of Ruth, which is the family's line restored. The family's line restored. The women said, living there, said to Naomi, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashan. Nashan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Wow. This was something no one expected. God was, wasn't just working to restore Naomi's fortunes. He was working to give her, Ruth, and Boaz a, a family tree they would never even have dreamed of. 
they would be related to, aside from Moses, the most important person in Israel, to King David. They would be given the, her- the honor of joining that heritage, that family. Kids, this would be like knowing that your grandson was going to be the prime minister of Australia. And not just any prime minister, but the greatest prime minister this country had ever seen. A prime minister who would bring Australia into the most beautiful times of its life and bring the people into great joy and gladness. That would be the kind of honor you would feel if you knew this. And isn't it amazing that at the beginning of the book of Ruth, we thought that Elimelech's line might be snuffed out from the pages of history. But God was working to not only restore Ruth's fortunes, but to honor her and to place this family in the line of the Messiah himself, in the line of King David. Now, isn't it interesting that Boaz shows up in that genealogy? I mean, wouldn't we expect it to be the son of Elimelech, Elimelech, or Elimelech the father of Marlon, Marlon, the father of Obed? Because that was the legal thing that was going on. When Obed was born, he belonged to the family line of Elimelech. But instead of putting Elimelech or Marlon there, the author put Boaz, the father by blood. And the reason seemed to be that he wanted to honor Boaz. He wanted to honor Boaz. And this is exactly what the people of Bethlehem hoped for in 4 verse 11. They said to Boaz, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Boaz, you're such an honorable man. May God bless you. And it turns out that his fame is spread far further than a little town in Israel. Here we are, thousands of years later, on the other side of the world, talking about how God used this man in the family of some widows. And this illustrates another lesson for us, that we should not become weary in doing good. We should not become weary in doing good. Have you ever said to yourself, why should I bother? Does it really make a difference? Is this really worth it? Why should we bother? Because God sees. And God knows everything that we do. Boaz was already a man of standing in Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 when we first met him in the story. Who knows how many years he had just been doing kind deeds and good deeds to others. But imagine he was just too depressed by the dark times of the judges, by all of the terrible things that were going on. He said, just, I give up. What difference, what dent am I going to make in the evil that I see around me? We might not have been talking about him today. What we do matters. What we do later today at the festival, serving there matters. What our tech people do, our musicians and our volunteers do matters. God is rolling out his story through history and he loves to use our little acts of obedience to make huge moves of redemption. Galatians 6 says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. What we do matters. And you know what? I'm still not done explaining all the blessings that flowed on from this family. I'm still not done, even at King David. And I want to share a poem with you now, which takes us the rest of the way. It's a beautiful little poem. And it tells us where the family tree eventually led. Here it is. 
Ruth and Boaz. They tied the knot and lived to be quite happy ever afterly. And soon God blessed them with a son, a precious little baby one. But wait, this story's far from done. Because their son, he was the one who had a son, who had a kid, known as King David. Yes, he did. And David was the great, 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 great times three times one plus eight, great granddad of a man whose wife you've probably heard of all your life. A man whose son, to be precise, was Jesus. No, yes, Jesus Christ. Just take a second, think it through. Oh, what God will go and do. For God is love and love is kind. The kindest that you'll ever find. The kindest that you'll ever see. That's something else. Don't you agree? You see, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz didn't end up just being related to King David. But you go down the line of history, the pages of history, and eventually it turns out they were related to King Jesus. If you go and read Matthew chapter 1, you look at Jesus' genealogy, his family tree, and Ruth and Boaz are right in there. God was working to honor this family in ways that they could never have ever even conceived. And Jesus, just like Obed, was born in the little town of Bethlehem. He was born miraculously. And Obed's name means servant. And Jesus was the greater Obed, the greater servant. And he himself said in his lifetime, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. To give my life as the redemption payment for many. And Jesus didn't just redeem one widow's family line. Jesus came into our world. He was born at Christmas because he was going to redeem people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. What was he going to redeem us from? Well, just like Naomi, the threat of death, death threatens to extinguish us, to remove us from existence, from the pages of history. Death is an enemy that we all have to face. But Jesus came like the greater Boaz, full of integrity, with the ability to redeem us from that situation. And he counted a far more infinite cost than Boaz ever did. He counted the cost of his own life, and he thought it well worth it to redeem people like you and me. Jesus is that loving, that generous, that faithful. If you think Boaz was a great guy, Jesus was far greater. That's why Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, we have redemption through his blood. You see, Jesus didn't risk his wallet or his fame. He, he risked his life. He gave his life for people like you and me. The debt of our sin to God is too enormous for us to pay ourselves. And the judgment for our sin is death, Romans 6 verse 23. But at Christmas, we remember that Joseph was told to name his child Jesus because that name means Savior, because he would save his people from their sins. You see, Jesus saw you and me in our spiritual poverty. He looked at us. He looked at us in our predicament, in our slavery to death, and his heart melted. He loved us. 
He decided to give up his own life to save us. He decided to humble himself, take on human flesh, to be born in a, in a pigsty, in a manger, to live a life of service, to live a life of suffering and difficulty, to go to the cross, to die in our place, to take sin's penalty for us so that anyone who puts their faith in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the good news of Christmas. And I just really want to plead with you this morning, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, I just want to plead with you to put your trust in him. He is far more trustworthy than Boaz ever was. He is full of integrity, full of honor, full of kindness and generosity, so much so that he gave his life for sinners and sufferers and rebels. I just want to call on you to put your faith in him this morning. That's that's where the real Christmas joy comes from. So back to the question I asked at the beginning. Is God against us? Do bitter times mean God is against us, is against the believer? Well, no. Jesus is proof of that. And God used even the bitterness and shame of the cross to accomplish a beautiful plan of redemption, to bring many people into his family under his care and kindness. And this is what my friend also experienced. I didn't tell you the full story earlier. He did say last year, I was a broken man. But he went on to say that he could see God's hand at work in his life in so many ways. He said there were areas of sin in his life that needed to be addressed and that he could see that God was sanctifying him, making him holy, making him more like Jesus. And he said that God brought him to this church where he has found so much healing. And he said it was heart-wrenching to go through what he did But life is so much better afterwards. Even in the most bitter of moments of life, God's hand was there, working, weaving, orchestrating. And he told me that even though it was so heart-wrenching, life is so much better now. So is God against us, church, when life is bitter? No. God is for us. Let's celebrate that this Christmas as we worship him for sending his son to redeem us. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we, we're in awe of you this morning. You are our redeemer, our savior. Lord, we just thank you that we have you in our corner, that we can lean into you that we can look to you for salvation, hope, for deliverance, for rescue. And that, Jesus, you did come. You entered into our world. You were born in the obscure little town of Bethlehem. And you came to do amazing, world-changing things. Jesus, we worship you. We bless your name this morning. You are good. You are gracious. You are kind. And Lord, we pray that you would really implant the truths of your word in our hearts, that we too would strive to be people of integrity, that we would continue doing good and not grow weary in it, Lord, that we would look for your hand at work in everyday, ordinary life, 
Lord, we pray that you'd use us in our Christmas festival later today. We pray that you would bless us now as we sing and as we worship. Have your way among us, Father. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand with me? And we'll be meeting to worship God this Christmas on Thursday night and Friday morning. I would love to see you there. I'm just going to close by blessing you with the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.